It is the OU Jewish Reaction Show. Welcome, everybody. It's an Alchem Single Network, and every single week, courtesy of the OU, we have an opportunity to speak with some amazing guests. Today, we start things off with a journey to Iran. Journalist and political advisor Annika Henroth Rothstein came back from a uh, from two trips to Iran, where she visited with the Jewish community as well as reported on the 2016 parliamentary elections. She lectures and shares stories from these trips, shares pictures of these trips, and gives insight into Jewish life in Iran inside a closed totalitarian regime. Annika Hanna Rothstein, welcome to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks for having me. How does one arrange to take a trip to Iran? Uh, wow. Well, it's, uh, it's a pretty long and difficult process, but it all starts with applying for a journalist visa and, you know, hoping, and then at times hoping you won't get it, and at times hoping you will get it. It took me about three months from application to confirmation. And you have, any, um, you have any idea if that's typical, or most people would wait longer, or some people would get it in less time? Uh, I would think it took me a little bit longer because of my background, because I was very, I explicitly said that I'm going to report on the Jewish community in Iran. Um, they knew somewhat, they knew a little bit about my connection to Israel. Um, I'm assuming they knew a lot more than I knew that they knew um, <laughs> by the time that I had applied. <laughs> They're not stupid people by any means. So it took a long time. There were a few interviews. Um, and some back and forth. And at, at one point, I was really concerned because I wasn't hearing back from them for about three or four weeks. But then uh, out of nowhere, uh, I got confirmation that I was allowed to go, uh, very specific dates, um, a very limited visa, as it is in, in countries like these. And, and I was really excited um, and scared. Is this <laughs> but mostly excited. Yeah, I can imagine. Is this considered courageous, uh, brave? I'm sure some people in your life had other adjectives they would have used. In yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <In terms>. um, <laughs> well, it was everything from stupid, um, courageous, inconsiderate, um, you know, of everything you could possibly imagine. Because I was very, I did not tell anyone that I was going before I went. Wow. Um, other than, you know, two or three very close friends for emergency contact purposes. But I did not want it out there because I did not want my social media to kind of be infected with things and opinions. And it is, you know, there's a real risk um, in doing something like this. So I did not want people to comment on it until I was definitely back safe and sound. The trip was a total of how many days? Uh, 20 days. So it was 10 days. Then I went back to Sweden for two weeks, and then I went for another 10 days. Well, I assume the second 10 days were not nearly as... Uh as nerve-wracking, or is that not true? I would say they were more, much, much more. Really? Uh, for for two reasons. I think, you know, I, I go the first time, and, and everything is new. You're kind of taken aback by the fact that, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm in Iran, which is in itself just a really odd experience um, for, you know, a European Jew to just land in Iran by herself. Um, and then you're, you're not able to process it the first time. I'm really happy that I went the second because I saw a lot of things. Um, I would say especially on the negative side that I didn't see the first time huh, because there is, there is an initial infatuation um, 
when you travel. I think you're, no one is, is completely free of that. And also, it was the election. The second time I went, it was a parliamentary election. And, you know, ever since the, the so-called Green Revolution, they're pretty, you know, the regime is pretty nervous uh, around those kind of events. Yeah. So it was tense. It was a very, very tense situation. Um, on the safety issue, I, I would assume most journalists do, in fact, make it out alive, not to be too dramatic, but I would assume that that's the case, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is it is a, a matter of kind of playing the game and, and understanding um, that you sort of use them and you're being used back. You just have to be aware of that. I understood that to them I am a commodity because... I am, you know, a single Jewish woman traveling in Iran, and, and I'm sure I'm being used in all kinds of propaganda. And um, there is a, you know, there is a back and forth there. I'm getting something, they're getting something. Right. And they want me to stay safe. They also want me to stay confined and see certain things and not see other things. And um, it's... It, you know, you try as a journalist to to go behind that curtain, but in places like that, it's very very difficult to do, and it, it mostly is all about reading between the lines Annika, and getting your own sense of things. Annika Hanna Rothstein is with us uh, about her trip to Iran. Uh, so they're essentially in charge of your itinerary, right? There's almost of course, yes. There's almost mm-hmm. nothing you could do without them knowing about it. And if you're curious about anything having to do with the Jewish community, it's only with their authorization that they're going to let you explore that. Right, and there is there are certain you know special permits, a lot of special permits that come at a you know kind of hefty cost as well, of course, because it's also a business. You get um, assigned a handler and a translator and a driver, and these are all people who work for the foreign ministry. So I was never alone, apart from when I slept. Um, I was never alone. Hmm. So you're being taken care of. Um, and they know what you're doing at all times. There are debriefings every day um, by the by the handlers and by the foreign ministry, and and it's a very you know it's a very stringent system. Um, and I was not you know it wasn't a situation where I was able to walk freely wherever I wanted. I, I had to tell them what I wanted to see, and they would try to make that happen. Um, so I, it was a very you know it, it's a confined you're in a very confined space. What does Iran look like? Is it similar to any other place you've been to? Um, I mean, it's it is the Middle East. It's first of all, it's beautiful. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I was surprised for many reasons. I've spent a lot of time in Israel. I I don't think I've ever fallen in love with a place um, in the way that I fell in love with Iran since Israel. There are a lot of similarities between the Persian people and and the Jewish people. Um, I you know I felt at home in a way. Uh, Tehran is loud and congested and, you know, stressful, and there's a lot of tension there because it is the hub of the regime as well. You can really feel that. It was not until I got, I went out to, to Hamadan to visit the tombs of Esther and Mordecai, and there it's more rural, and you get to see the daily life in a different way, and, and I enjoy that. It's It's beautiful. Um, and but it's so intense that not until I got back and was able to kind of digest everything and look at the pictures was I able to have like a second and third experience because I was so stressed out while I was there and, uh, and trying to stay focused. Are, are people generally I don't know courteous and uh, were they friendly to you? How would you how would you evaluate your interaction with regular people? I would say 
extremely happy to see me. That is that is the uh, you know kids came up the 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 families that are you know more more affluent send their kids to private English tutoring, uh-huh. and but they are not able to actually speak English and interact in English with anyone because they don't really travel right. right. So when they saw me and I'm you know I'm five nine I have blue eyes I was obviously not Persian. Um, they would just like send their kids up to me and the kids would come introduce themselves in English. They were so happy. They said, thank you for visiting our country. It's, you know, it was a very endearing experience. But again, you know, I, I became aware, especially during my second trip that I'm, all my experiences are controlled experiences. So it's, it's not unlike, um, you know, my parents traveled a lot at, behind the wall before the wall came down. It's a lot like Eastern Europe or like the Soviet Union in that everyone is watching someone and that person is being watched by someone else. Right. Uh, did the kid- so it's not a relaxed interaction. Did the kids ask you in English about any curiosities about the United States or the English-speaking world, or that doesn't come up? Well, what mostly came- people want to know where I have been. Mm-hmm. So that was the most commonly asked question. Have you been to Paris? And that was, you know, have you been to New York? What does it look like? Um, people asked me if I had pictures on my phone of different places. I mean, the most um, moving thing was when I was in, I spent a lot of time in the Jewish community. I was there davening every day in Tehran. And they asked me things about Jerusalem. Have I been to Jerusalem? What is What does that place look like? Had I been to Hebron? Had I been to, you know, Bethlehem? Had I been, so... You, you meet a people who have a connection to the land, but not the state, and they know of places, but have never seen them with their own eyes. Hmm. So that was a very moving experience, because they wanted to know, are these, are these places real now? Uh, have you been there? What does that look like? What does it feel like? And that was a very, very special experience for me. And and it taught me something about what, what Jewish life is when you don't have a connection to the state of Israel, but only through text have a connection to the land of Israel. And, and for me as a Jew, that was a very significant experience. Wow, interesting. Annika Hannah Rothstein is with us. All right, so tell me about the Jewish community. How large is it spread out in different areas of the country? How much of it did you meet? What's the Jewish community like? So... It's, they say the official number is about twelve to 15,000 Jews in the entire country, which is actually the same number as the Swedish Jewish community. Um, seven to 8,000 are in Tehran, where I spent the bulk of my time, but I was also in Esfahan and in Hamadan, that are, you know, very old Jewish communities in Iran. Uh, and you have a fourth Jewish community in Shiraz. So I would say as as a European Jew, it was very exotic and slightly confusing because as far as freedom of religion goes or, you know, religion religious expression, they have a lot more of it in Iran than I am able to express in Europe. Because, you know, uh, the situation for Jews in, in Europe right now is, is a dire one. And I wouldn't necessarily go out and be openly or blatantly Jewish and I can't, you know, get kosher meat. I have to import it from, a, you know, a country, another European country. It's very difficult for me to live um, as a religious Jew. But in, in Iran, religious life is built into the system. Their law of the land is Sharia law, which means that they have a high regard of religious people. 
So religiously, the Jews are doing very well. They are also more religious and more traditional because there is now assimilation because intermarriages, you know, punishable by death. (laughs) So you know, (laughs) right? So you don't marry. You don't marry out. Like it's it's well, Jews could marry out, and it's a very actually a very you know difficult situation for them legally because if a Jew converts to Islam, then that person inherits the entire family estate. Oh, boy. So, but of course, Muslims don't convert to Judaism, right. and so they they've kept a very you know confined Jewish community. They're very religious. They're very traditional, and and for me, you know, if you walk into I thought it would be more different than it actually was. I mean, I came there on a Thursday when I went to the Kabbalah Shabbat service on Friday. I felt right at home. Like it was, I I just felt, oh, okay, so this is family. It's like family wherever I go. If I go to Poland or I go to the Upper West Side or wherever I am, if I walk into a shul, I know what's going on. Now th- I understand this. Now, this might be a question that might be uh, more appropriate for somebody living in Sweden than in Iran, especially based on, right. what, you, on what you just said. <laughs> but did you get into discussions with them about why they're still there? Oh, of course, yeah. Um, yeah, it applies to both of us, I would say, <laughs> or both communities. <laughs> but, I mean, they are there. There's an official answer, then it's my interpretation of that. So the official answer is we are proud Iranians, we want to be here. This is an ancient Jewish community. We should be able to stay. We want to stay. Okay? That's the official answer that you would get. Because you have to remember that while I was in shul, while I was at Shabbat dinner, there was a Muslim handler by my side the entire time. So I'm not alone in shul. So just thank God, you know, that it's it's an Orthodox shul, which means that I can speak privately with the women. And he's not around. But other than that, I am not alone. So that's the official answer. Then my interpretation of that is that, first of all, it's very difficult to get a visa to go anywhere. And if you apply for a visa and you are, for example, single, uh, you don't give, they don't give a whole, you know, a whole family a visa to go abroad and to leave Iran, which means that you can send someone. But then he has to put up his entire estate or his house as collateral, and he gives that to the state until he comes back. So, of course, you can flee, and, and the chief rabbi told me that they have a record number of agunot in Iran wow. because it is heard of that men just leave right. and they don't come back, right? Yeah. But also if you get out and you're a single person and you for some reason get out, then this is a tight-knit community, and I, don't, I imagine it would be very difficult to just leave uh, and not have that on your weighing on your conscience. What would happen to the community if you kind of defected? Because I know they had a very difficult time when Israel a few years back offered a larger sum of money for Jews in Iran to make Aliyah, and they made this public, and this was known. And the Jews in Iran have been working very hard to distance themselves from Israel, from the state of Israel. For their own safety. Did anybody speak to you with desperation in their voice in terms of the uh, need and desire to get out now? Well, there was one man. I was um, at, on Moshe Shabbos one week. I was I was there, you know, taking pictures and interviewing people. And most people gave me kind of the same spiel and were, were very happy and very welcoming and very sweet. And then one older man who I guess did not care anymore 
came up to me and he said, if they're telling you that we're okay, they're lying. I want you to pray for us, and I want you to pray for the Jews of Iran, because we are not okay. Boy, oh boy. And, yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm assuming that he is, you know, um, a single older man, that he's able to do that, because most people wouldn't. And I was so taken aback by that. And, and it's, it's a horrible thing to know that this is, you know, they're not being persecuted. It's not, you know, 1933 Germany, but it is like a gilded cage that they live in because they are being used to, um, to show, the regime is using them to show that, you know, we care about all minorities and Jews live a great life here and we believe in pluralism and all that. So they are treated well, but it, is, it comes with strings, you know, very, very visible strings. And they have to act a certain way, and they have to live a certain way. So it is a gilded cage, and it is a form of prison, but it is not persecution. And that was a very difficult distinction to make when I was writing about it, because I did not want it to come off as me being apologetic of the regime. But I also want to tell a true story, which is that this is a very proud people that are very proud to be Persian Jews. Uh, and they have a... Uh, yes. On the second trip, you mentioned that because the parliamentary elections were going on, there was more tension. It was a different type of uh, atmosphere, especially in Tehran. Yeah. Especially in Tehran. Um, how do you describe that? Well, it was first of all, it was all the small things, which means that if I took out a camera, people would, you know, the police would approach me. But I was no longer allowed to take pictures of people in the street. If there were gatherings of people, the police would immediately, immediately break them up. Because of what happened in '09, they would not allow gatherings of more than, you know, five or six people at one time. The police would come and immediately break them up because they're very scared of, you know, riots and uprisings against the regime. Right. Uh, they were much more suspicious of me. I was put in, you know, several difficult conversations with the foreign ministry regarding my connections to Israel, conversations that made me... You know, the diplomatic answer was, I guess, very uneasy. <laughs> right. But I was, you know, it scared me because it was brought up on numerous occasions. And that was not something they discussed during the first trip when, you know, I was just a rare foreign journalist and I was treated very, very well. During the second trip, you know, they want to pull this off. And because of what's happened in the past, they are keeping everything, you know, a tight lid on everything. They are controlling the population um, and they are doing so very, very carefully. They turned off the Internet, for example, the day before the election and during the election, the day of. So it was, uh, I was unable to browse the Internet. They slowed down the Internet to a point where you can't upload anything. So I couldn't send pictures. I couldn't send articles. It made it very difficult. More seasoned journalists bring their own Internet, so they, bring, they don't rely on the Iranians to provide that for them. But that's the kind of tricks that they use so that what they call Western propaganda won't get in or out. So very, you can see that they've learned their lesson. Very interesting. Um, I wonder if, as I speak to you and associate with you with Israel, this was already after the Iran deal was uh, finalized, correct? Yeah. So I came on the heels of that, and, and it was... Um, of course, the topic of conversation, and I, I asked everyone I met, basically, about how they felt about it. I was able to speak to a lot of, um, you know, the top candidates for both lists. They don't have parties in that traditional sense, but right. both political lists. 
uh, how they felt about it. And it was interesting because you could see that they, they felt like winners. They knew they were winners. And I, I asked them, you know, straight up, I asked them, you know, we, as a conser- political conservative and as a Jew, I discussed this Iran deal a lot. And I've seen, in my opinion, Obama gave, gave this deal to you, that you came away the clear winner. And both top candidates from both lists said, yes, absolutely. We absolutely agree. And when I spoke to the general population, they were very clear in saying that, yes, we, we want our money back. So we want our frozen assets back, but we don't want, this is not an opening to the West. One made the comparison between a shidduch or, or a marriage. He said, well, you know, a, a man can propose to a woman, but if she does not say yes, there will not be a wedding. Right. And this is how they view the Iran deal, that, yes, you know, Obama may have proposed, but we did not say yes, so there is no wedding. Interesting. Um, as many of us always suspected. Uh, finally, yes. we read a lot about Sweden. It, everything we read in terms of safety, in terms of uh, refugees, in terms of um, uh, danger, specifically for women there, uh, is, all this mm-hmm. tr- is all this true or exaggerated? Some is obviously exaggerated. Um, I would say that Sweden has changed dramatically in the past five years in a way that I would would never have imagined. And back then, for a Jew, it was already unsafe, especially in, in cities like Malmö that a lot of people have heard of in the south of Sweden that has pretty much already five years ago was taken over by refugees and immigrants, and the Jews left. They made Aliyah, or they moved to Stockholm, or they moved to the U.S. Now we see that spread. That was like a hothouse situation, and we've seen that. It was an example of what Sweden was to become, and we see that now across the country. We have an enormous, you know, immigration crisis or refugee crisis, whatever you want to call it. Um, our government has been unable to, to deal with it. We had a change in government, so we now went back to the old school, you know, socialist government uh, two years ago. And uh, it's a combination of, um, I guess, political correction, correctness and, and shock in what, you know, no one expected. No one in, in, in political life expected it to move this quickly. Mm-hmm. And for Jews, it, it isn't, it, it's not a safe situation, but it's, it hasn't been for five or, or ten years. Anti-Semitism is a real issue here. Um, we have laws restricting our religious life. We, you know, kosher slaughter has been outlawed here since before the Second World War. Anti-Semitism is not, you know, a new thing in this country. Um, we are unable to, you know, they want to outlaw uh, circumcision. We have very few Jewish schools. We do not have a, a rich Jewish life. The Jewish communities we have are wonderful, but it is a dire situation, and we see it across Europe. So we are living, um, we're like the, the boiling frog, I guess. You know, we're, we're kind of, you know, we've gotten used to it over the past 10 years, so you're, you're, it's, it's a number of adaptations. Annika Khanna Rothstein, she is uh, she's back from Iran. She was there uh, reporting on the 2016 parliamentary elections, part of these two journeys that she took there. In a lecture that she'll be giving May the 31st at the OU Israel Center in Jerusalem, she'll share stories from and pictures of these trips and give an insight into Jewish life in Iran inside a closed totalitarian regime that happens May the 31st, 8 p.m. in Jerusalem at the OU Israel Center. Cannot thank you enough for joining us. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Annika Hanna-Rothstein here at the Nahum Siegel Network. You're listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Show as we continue here 
on a uh, Tuesday broadcast. OU Jewish reaction after JM in the AM between 9 and 10 Eastern time every single Tuesday. Um, and I thank you very much for uh, tuning in. Uh, Phyllis Kogel is with us. Phyllis Kogel is Director of Marketing at the OU, at the Orthodox Union. And um, it joins us via telephone here on a Tuesday at the Nachum Siegel Network. Phyllis, welcome to the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank you, Nachum. I'm happy to be here. I appreciate that. I think we've spoken before, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, we have. Uh, and someone tells me that you've had a, you yourself have had a journey recently of note. Could you tell us I, about it? Sure. Um, we were invited. The OU Kosher Division was invited by the Italian Chamber of Commerce in New York to bring a group of kosher buyers to a specialty food show in Parma, Italy, where there were about 6,000 Italian food manufacturers eager to meet buyers who might be interested in their products. And it was an amazing, amazing trip. When did it take place? Very recently? It was, yeah, it was um, May 9th through 12th. Oh, literally just now. Yeah, it was really recent. And um, the weather was glorious in Italy while it was raining here, so we were all happy to get away. And um, I was really surprised at the volume of unique and interesting products that our buyers were really, really interested in. And the beauty of a mission like this is that the OU was on hand to work with the food manufacturers. So if a buyer wanted to bring in a product and it wasn't yet kosher certified, we were there to help them with that process. Well, what's a good example of some of these uh, food items and ingredients that people were looking for and they came away with? So, for example, there was um, a unique product made from pistachios. It was like a health food bar, but all made from pistachio nuts and some other healthy ingredients. So that was an interesting product. Then there were some unique uh, herbs in tubes that would really, really be an amazing product for Jewish households and kosher community. And there was just unique products that we'd never seen before, like a coconut olive oil spread that was such a beautiful light spread that some of the buyers were really, really curious what it would take to get a kosher because we've never seen a product like that in the kosher market. All right, that leads to the next question, and I know that the answer is different for each product, but in general, is there a way for you to describe what it does take to make it kosher? Is there a way to describe what process needs to go through and if, in fact, it's not as difficult as we think? Oh, absolutely. It's really a simple process, and companies are really surprised to hear because they always are so nervous or a little apprehensive thinking that the rabbi has to come down and bless the equipment, <laughs> yeah. which is not true. And they're always afraid that they may have to change ingredients or change something. So we really work with them to show them how simple it can be. So our process is really simple from the beginning. All we need is an application filled out, which lists all their ingredients and where they're buying their ingredients and what they're making. And then we usually set up an appointment for one of our rabbis anywhere in the world to visit the facility and do an initial inspection that verifies its feasibility. And once we're able to determine that we can do a kosher program there, you know, we work it out with the manufacturer, we set up a contract, we, we negotiate a fee, and the fees are not as astronomical as companies think, and they're often surprised that it's so affordable. And they usually get a return on their investment almost immediately. And that's really it. Who's responsible for that region of the world? Are there many rabbis you could choose from to go uh, in Italy and, uh, and take care of these procedures? 
So that really originates in our office here in New York, and that's Rabbi Nachum Rabinowitz, who handles all of Europe, and specifically Italy. He's been tremendously successful in growing that region for us. Um, He's there a few times a year meeting with manufacturers. We also have our own mashgichim and rabbis who do field work for us and our representatives in Europe, specifically in Italy. So that category has grown for us a lot. We're currently certifying over 200 companies in Italy. Wow. Is this the first first time a trip like this has taken place? No, we actually did it two years ago, and it was very successful that they invited us again. And on the second mission, they actually were very specific about which buyers they wanted us to bring, and that was very unique to us because that meant they did their homework and they really started to understand the kosher market and its value to the manufacturers. What about other regions and countries, this type of trip taking place? So it hasn't happened yet, but we're hopeful, and we're always working with different governments and different agencies all over the world. But this was a real learning experience for both of us, and we see the potential for everybody. It's a win-win for the country, for the kosher community, for the buyers, and for the OU. I assume you met people who had no clue about kosher food, right? You know what? It's interesting. They don't, but once you start explaining it to them, they sort of get it. You know, if I speak to someone who doesn't, who's limited in English and I mention the word kosher, they're not always sure what I mean. <laughs> then I start to explain it's similar to halal, and then like a light bulb goes off in their head and they go, <laughs> now they get it. And the kosher category is just a tremendous category, and it's not just our community that's buying kosher. Yeah, that's true. There are other communities that are into kosher right. at this point. Sure. Um, Phyllis Kogel is with us, marketing director at OU Kosher. And uh, I, I guess once the uh, pre-Pesach rush ended, uh, everyone found time to do a trip like this, right? Absolutely, you yes. You couldn't have done it in April. <laughs> no, and I have to tell you that the people who invited us were very sensitive to that, and they were very careful about the date, so we really, really appreciate that. All right. And mm-hmm. um, anything else you could add that you could tell us about this trip of interest? Uh, you know what? At the end of my trip, I got to um, spend a weekend at the Amalfi Coast after this long week of walking and talking to hundreds of people, and I recommended everybody take a trip there because it's paradise. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Phyllis Kogel, she is the uh, OU Kosher Marketing Director, and uh, they just had this amazing buyer's trip to um, to Italy. I would guess all the buyers felt it was worthwhile, huh? Absolutely. And Absolutely. And this uh, amazing concept of continuing to spread and really to 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 um, shrink the world a bit, right? It's really yeah. The world is really a very small place. It's unbelievable. Uh, continues with uh, with wonderful effort and with great success. Phyllis, I thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. A pleasure, Phyllis Kogel. She is the marketing director at OU Kosher, and um, I'm sure more and more of these journeys are going to become commonplace as we go forward. You are listening to the. OU Jewish Reaction Program. This is the Nahum Siegel Network. More coming. Tavo, not Hilo, Louis Tavo, not Philo, 
که گفتی نشما فیلا به لوی کوانات خیلا به لوی کوانات فیلا که گفتی نشما Say, 
OU Jewish Reaction Show. I thank everybody for tuning in and being part of this amazing effort. Check out the Nachum Siegel Network uh, on Facebook. Facebook update page is simply entitled Nachum Siegel Network. And tune into the OU Jewish Reaction program every Tuesday, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, right here at the Nachum Siegel Network. <laughs>